This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Ukrainian policy expert Hannah Shalist is live in Ukraine and gives us the latest from Odessa on the southern coast of the Black Sea. The Russian invasion is literally happening down the road. She tells us how Ukrainians are getting the information they need to survive, the ongoing attacks across the country, and more crucial information too. Now, the entire world's been shocked by this invasion of Ukraine, and Dr. Balkan Devlin, senior fellow at McDonnell Laurier Institute, leader of the Transatlantic Program, tells us the war uh, is still an option for global superpowers like Russia. In fact, it happens all the time around the world. Why does it happen? Is this what real life is like? Why do people not leave? Also, Ryan shares a story about seeing images of protests by citizens in Russia. Russia on social media and the decision of a well-known Finnish hockey team to leave a Russian hockey league because of what's been going on. All of this and more on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. A millennial perspective is always an interesting one um, because, you know, Ryan's generation has not been through the same things that mine has, for example. There are two particular stories here, Ryan, that we're going to try to squeeze in that caught your attention today that you wanted to share with us. Where do we start? Mm-hmm. Well, first uh, first thing I saw today when I checked my email, checked my Twitter, I was like, okay, you know what? I'll check TikTok. I could use a dose of funny, always good stuff on TikTok. But I, I saw memes about war, which made me very mad. Very disappointed. And we'll talk about that later. I don't need to talk about that now. But what I will mention is some of the good that I saw this morning on social media. That is the sound of Russians protesting the war in Russia, literally saying no to war. Um, And the scale of these protests is pretty incredible across 52 cities. Um, This is a great little summary of what we know about the protests so far. But we saw protests break out uh, throughout the country today, including here in Moscow, a heavy security presence across 53 cities. 1,700 protesters were arrested. These are big numbers historically for Russian protests and kind of give you uh, a sense of the scale of it. But I have to say it is still a a much smaller arrest number than we saw essentially one year ago when people took to the streets to protest the arrest of the uh, of the opposition leader, uh, Alexei Navalny. They arrested over 1,700 people across all of Russia yesterday. 1,700 people all saying no to this war. And the crowds are huge. And it does play into the the story and the narrative that this war is not universally accepted or supported in Russia, which uh, means the longer this conflict goes on, the more people are going to die for no reason whatsoever, and the harder it is for Putin to sell it to the Russian people. And um, they're stepping up to the point where the uh, Ukraine's president said thank you to the Russians protesting. And I think that's a key thing that I've that I've really discovered while watching this conflict unfold on social media, which that is an interesting conversation in of itself, watching a yeah. war happen online. Um, 
is that it's not so much Ukrainians versus Russians. It's a Russian government and military and a Russian ideology against Ukraine. But uh, you watch the history. These nations looked at each other as brothers and sisters. And man, this is an unbelievable development. And at least it did give my heart a little bit of warmth to see so many people in Russia um, saying no to war, literally. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about the implications of this war on Russia, let's look at a surprising consequence. And that's in the world of sports. Jokerit Helsinki. Uh, can you summarize? Yeah, I want you to summarize this story, Ryan, just for the sake of time, because yeah. I want to elaborate on it as we get through the top of the next hour. And if you can't catch that, um, this will be on the podcast. So don't worry about it. You can catch it there. Um, but I do want you to tell just quick headline on this. We'll carry it over because I have, there's another piece of info I just found that I want to add on to it. Great. Yeah. So Jokerit Helsinki, which is a uh, well-known Finnish team that plays in the KHL, the Russian equivalent of the NHL, it looks like they are leaving the the KHL in protest of this war. A team leaving a sports league. And it's not just happening in that league. There are more sports pulling out. Ryan O'Donnell, why don't you recap that story a little bit so we can uh, chat about it? Yeah. So the... It seems that Jokerit Helsinki, which is a long-standing hockey team, they've been around for a very long time, but they joined the KHL um, in the mid-2010s. They seem to be pulling out of the KHL in protest of the invasion. Now, uh, the interesting thing is uh, a couple of news outlets in uh, Norway or Finland, Finland, yeah, uh, Finland have uh, said that this is happening. However, there's no official word from the team yet. The team put out a pretty interesting um, uh, statement on their website, and it has not been updated since the very beginning of the invasion. Um, now, this is translated through Google, so bear with me because the translation is a little awkward from uh, Finnish. Uh, but uh, it essentially says the Jokers have binding agreements with the KHL and an obligation to comply with them. Jokers also have a responsibility as an employer, as the situation is also exceptionally difficult. We do not feel that the Joker at Sports Club is the right party to strongly align their views on the situation. Um, that's the last official word from the team. However, there are multiple reports that they are leaving, and uh, a, a few advertisers have already left the team because of its uh, placement within the KHL. It's an important because this is the only Scandinavian team in the KHL. This would be a big hit to the league, which is the KHL is no joke. It is a big hockey league. Oh, it's a and good quality hockey. Great hockey league. And also the Jokers have an unbelievable hockey jersey worth checking out. Mm-hmm. But uh, if this does go through, as the reports from Finland suggest, it's a big hit to the KHL. And that's not the only uh a sports team and sports league to say we're not doing this Canada's winter skiing uh, uh, team will not be competing in a championship that's supposed to take place in Russia uh, it's uh, it, it's just getting more I think we're going to start to see more and more of these unexpected consequences of the invasion for Russia mm-hmm. well here's an interesting one for you I was watching the Sportsnet 
rebroadcast of the American uh, broadcast of the Washington Capitals versus the New York Rangers game. And some of the commentary on there from that broadcast was about Alex Ovechkin playing in the game. Alex Ovechkin is Russian, and he is very popular, right? He is the, you know, our Sidney Crosby, our Connor uh, McDavid. Like, he is he is Russia's hockey player, the star of all hockey stars. Now, the speculation that they brought up, uh, I'm not going to really repeat what they said because I, I don't want to misquote, and they were only uh, sharing some opinion and perspective too. But it did bring up some things worth considering. Imagine the place that it put this this conflict puts a guy like that. Whether he agrees or disagrees with the war, he's a face of Russia mm-hmm. playing hockey in America. If he were to say personally disagree with the war, and this is a hypothetical, I'm not saying he does or doesn't. If Alex Ovechkin were to come out and say I disagree with this war, that would have a major impact on the people of Russia. He's so popular. If he came out and he said he was for the war, that would have a major impact on the people of Russia. The poor guy can't say anything. They've been actually been declining him doing any of the hockey presser interviews so he mm-hmm. doesn't get asked because he can't. Because think about the pickle a guy like that is. He's the face of Russia. He can't say anything. Because if he says he's against the war, I mean, let's just say for what it is, Russia has a history of just people disappearing and getting poisoned, right? Like, I mean, it's not like it's a the friendliest place to detractors. They arrested 1,700 protesters. And which is makes me grateful for the country we live in when we have the right to protest. So if he says he's for it, he's screwed. If he says he's against it, he's screwed. I mean, that could be family. That could be him. Maybe he's not welcome back in the country anymore. He loves his country. He's been very clear in his interviews. He loves Russia. He loves his country. He loves his time in the United States, but he does love his country. So there, he's not the only athlete. There are many athletes that get caught in this, well, what are you going to do? They're going to get pressured to take a side. They're going to get pressured to make a comment. He's a hockey player. He's a human being. And in situations like that, I really hope that we get it together and just let him be a hockey player. Because regardless, whether we don't know, maybe he's got family involved. Maybe he's got some family member who's in the military and he's worried about that. So the the impact gets really big really quick. And whether it's a team in the KHL or whether it's a guy like Alex Ovechkin or any other of the Russians that are playing in the NHL, um, it's a lose-lose situation, and, and we don't make it any better by demanding. It's not our, not our business to ask him for a comment on what he thinks. If he's prepared to make a comment, I'm sure he will. But I just wanted to bring that up. I thought it was very, very interesting um, mm-hmm. and good perspective as a guy who is that popular in that country you know, would have a big impact. And I don't know what happens if you go against Vladimir Putin. I'm guessing it's not fun. The outcome, that's for sure. This is the Shift Podcast. 
We're going to go across the Atlantic here. Uh, it's a strange place, this technology today, right? It is because of this technology that we're able to connect to people that we would never before been able to connect with. And at the same time, it's because of this technology that we get ourselves into so much trouble with misinformation. Here's good news. Uh, Hannah Shalist is a PhD, the Foreign Policy Council Ukrainian Prism, which their goal is to spread reliable information, policy, foreign policy, diplomatic service, international relations, and so much more in Ukraine, uh, plus studying the executive and legislative power of Ukraine. Uh, Hannah, thank you very much for being here with us. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, good morning from uh, Ukraine and uh, good night for your Canadian listeners. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, Dr. Shalis, you um, are in, are you in Kiev right now? I'm right now in Odessa. That is the uh, biggest city on the south, uh, the main seaport yeah. um, of Ukraine. Now, Odessa itself has been um, uh, starting to make some of the headline news and information over here. Um, I mean, I want to ask you about your um, expert opinion on all of this in just one second. And if I can, I'll use your doctor, your doctorate in a second. I will use your your Hannah uh, human heart first, if that's okay. Can you tell me what you see and how you're doing? Are you okay? Yeah, you know, as the uh, conflict study specialist, that's always difficult these days because uh, you have both hats, the citizen and the expert. But if we talk uh, uh, neutral, what is happening on the south, most of the information about Odessa currently are not proved. Uh, we had attacks yesterday morning. Uh, those sounds I heard uh, pretty well uh, being just in the downtown. And uh, we had several attempts um, uh, to uh, shellings uh, around in the villages about 30, 40 kilometers from the city. Uh, one of the shells uh, managed to, to be just at the suburbs of uh, Odessa itself. Luckily, nobody uh, injured because um, uh, they targeted some uh, store facilities of the private companies. But uh, on the late in the night, uh, the Russians uh, captured the island, Snake Island. It is a very small island, 30 miles uh, from Odessa, but it's strategically very important. There is no civilians there. That is just uh, border officers, and uh, Russians killed all of them with the airstrike and capture it so now they can close the navigation from Crimea to um, Odessa all that part if you look to the map and we know that uh, the heavy fightings are happening uh, Kherson it is the nearby region so it's uh, sounds like 200 kilometers uh, from Odessa and they are coming definitely this way but armed forces are working pretty well as for now and in the morning the information started that the helicopters are coming on the south of the region. Just need to understand that Odessa region is very big. It is approximately the size of Belgium. Uh, so it is up to four hours drive north and south from Odessa. That's all is Odessa region. Mm -hmm. um, the story of those border guards, that's the one I think that has made headlines here as well, because apparently um, they made some comments uh, to the Russians um, telling them that they were... I'm trying to be gentle, very displeased with them being here and told them to go away um, before as they took their stand sticking up for Ukraine. So pretty remarkable uh, what people are doing there. I noticed that uh, on the Ukrainian Prism a website, you do have some information on what has been going on in Odessa. Um, how do you filter through that? Um, Hannah, I mean, you, the stand from what I understand, and please correct me if I've misunderstood, but with the Ukrainian prism, trying to pick through all of the uh, information in general 
as to what is real and what is accurate in your world over there must be difficult on a normal day, let alone at times like this. How do you do that? Yes, you said how we are doing with all this information. I would say that, uh, at least in my case, there are three reasons. First of all, uh, um, I have the background in conflict, so I've been in many conflict zones before, and I understand the logic of what is happening, what should be uh, taken into account, what should be just neglected for some time. So that is some you know, professional deformation, as we call it. The second is the experience of 2014, uh, because during the Yeremaidan and during the annexation of Crimea, uh, we experienced the same feelings. Definitely not the same scope of events, but the same feelings with the war starting on the east. And we already passed this. When you know how it is, it's easier uh, later to uh, overcome certain emotions. But the third is probably just adrenaline, uh, because it's just the third day of uh, these strong events happening, and we are trying to stay connected with all my colleagues because uh, um, our office is in Kiev but our experts are sitting in different towns we are calling to each other and uh, just exchanging information and the most difficult now is on the north we have a lot of people in Chernigiv city and they spend their night in the shelters uh, in Kiev uh, my colleagues in the morning are going to the territorial defense forces to uh, sign the contract with them uh, plus several of my friends spend the night in the shelter so you know when you get all this information it is becoming a little bit uh, probably easier because it's becoming not global but very local. Some of your friends are safe, the family is safe, and it's calming down emotions. Yeah, I can imagine that. Before we talk about what is going on in Kiev this morning, um, is the proximity to Crimea and the Crimean Peninsula, because you're in Odessa, is it does it work in your favor because Crimea is not part of this or does that work against you because uh like with with russians being so close does that work against you because of the proximity uh with odessa because there has not been a lot of conversation about odessa being a major target here uh, Odessa could be a major target, and as the night challenge demonstrated, that it definitely was a plan. However, um, uh, definitely uh, Russians expected that it will be something like a blitzkrieg from the north. So they put the main forces to uh, Kharkiv, Chernigiv, Kiev, so from the uh, north. And then they expected the second wave from Odessa, because from the sea it's a little bit sometimes easier, sometimes more difficult to to make an assault. There it is their border, so it's always a possibility for supply and support. Uh, but as Blitzkrieg didn't work, you can imagine that definitely they, um, as for now, they're a little bit more careful here. Uh, however, the proximity to uh, Crimea is very bad for us, because for the last several years, Russians concentrated the exceeded forces, and each December, the United Nations adopted resolution about militarization of Crimea. Uh, it's more than uh, 40,000 troops, it is uh, 46 ships, uh, uh, it is several submarines, so that is plenty of the strategic missiles that they've been bringing there openly, so it's not hidden or gossips or something, Russians being just demonstrating and playing the muscle, and now they start an attack from there. So de facto, Ukraine can be attacked from three, uh, I mean, Odessa can be attacked from three dimensions. Uh, by sea, with those ships, uh, then by land, uh, from Crimea, by the, by the landline, it's approximately three, four hundred kilometers. And also, don't forget, we have on our western border Transnistria. 
and other separatist regions uh, backed by Russians, uh, that is territory of Moldova, and they uh, are stationed there 1,500 uh, soldiers um, when Moldova for many, many years are urging them to withdraw these uh, illegal forces. So our guest right now is in Odessa, Ukraine. It's um, Dr. Hannah Shalist, Foreign Policy Counsel with Ukrainian PRISM um, that provides all kinds of uh, legislative uh, study and executive uh, power of Ukraine plus foreign policy diplomatic service. The list goes on and on. Uh, Hannah, can we take a little look now at Kiev and look at what what is going on there from your perspective? Can you help us understand that? I understand that this morning... There is an awful lot of um, activity going on in Kiev on Friday morning. Um, as soon as I understand now, for also approximately from four o'clock in the morning, um, Russians started uh, the uh, um, uh, missile attack and the airplanes attack, uh, um, air attack against uh, Kiev. Uh, we know already about at least two civilian buildings with the, a lot of people inside, uh, so multi-store buildings are uh, being uh, targeted. And uh, uh, there are several fires. So Ukrainians for sure shot down uh, one of the airplanes, one of the Su, uh, on the suburbs. And the sirens uh, have been heard in different parts of the cities. Thank you for listening to The Shift. Our guest right now is Dr. Hannah Shalist, Foreign Policy Council Ukrainian PRISM, joins us from Odessa, Ukraine, right now. Uh, Hannah, thanks for, for being here. This Internet connection may come up and down. We'll just keep trying because we want to have the conversation. Um, your policy, the policy end of your academic world, can you, I don't even know what to ask you about what is going on in Ukraine right now or what could happen. So how about I just invite you to tell me to put on that, that policy academic hat of yours and just tell me, uh, what you would tell me if we were sitting down here and I asked you like, what is happening? You know, it seems to me that now uh, the answers are the both because it's not time for the academic theoretical uh, talks. We are talking about the real politics and the real practice. Um, Ukrainians, first of all, are very determined, and that is very important. Russians expected that Ukrainian armed forces and Ukrainian people will surrender. And you started in the beginning uh, talking about, about disinformation. So, for example, you can imagine that in the uh, public net and social networks, it was the gossip that Odessa mayor ordered one million red roses uh, to meet uh, Russian forces here. And uh, um, the real fact was that uh, uh, roses were ordered because it is 8th of March that is highly celebrated here. So the market just ordered these roses and they were in the port. But definitely nobody were going to greet the Russian Federation and armed forces mm -hmm. with it. This in action right now, what happens if... I guess, what does Russia need to do? They need to surround Kiev and, and, and take away the president. Uh, how does the politics of this work? Uh, they definitely hope to surrender the city uh, and uh, surround the city and make Ukrainian president to surrender. Uh, that's, uh, that's their ultimate goal. Uh, what is next? Uh, ideally, they definitely want some kind of the pro-Russian government. And that is interesting that the intelligence services have been presenting several um, information that they received previously about the candidate that Russians saw as a possible candidate to lead uh, uh, like the new government. Uh, the problem is that these people are so much unpopular in the country that people have been just laughing about this possibility. And uh, definitely, uh, Russians are trying to present events of 2000 2014, the revolution of dignity as the coup, 
So now they are trying to make the same, like they think that it would be very easy just to bring, for example, former President Yanukovych, uh, who escaped to Russia, or some uh, a marginal pro-Russian politician, and said that will be your temporary prime minister or your president, and... Uh, uh, this uh, person would sign any type of the agreement with us. That would be so naive and would just demonstrate the complete misunderstanding of the situation in Ukraine. So uh, I can't imagine anything like this uh, happening. Well, it can't be the belief system of Russia that if they put in this new puppet leader and then they tell the military to surrender, that they truly believe that Ukrainians are just going to be like, okay, we're Russians now, here's my gun. They can't believe that that actually would be a thing. Exactly. You know, the question is that they remember how Crimea happened, where some parts of the armed forces surrender. But at that time, you know, we never experienced war. We couldn't imagine what does mean war. We couldn't expect what Russia would continue to do. So uh, and they've been frightening families of many military men. So that's happened. But eight years of war passed after this. We had daily shootings on the east of the country and two million of the internally displaced people. That's definitely not the same country as in 2014. And the armed forces are quite well prepared and motivated. That is extremely important. When now we compare reports from Russia and from Ukraine, Ukrainian armed forces are motivated because they know for what they are fighting and they know how many of their brothers uh, lost their lives for, for this freedom and so on. Russian soldiers, for example, yesterday, the whole unit, more than 20 people from the military intelligence that been on the ground, this reconnaissance team, you know, uh, they just surrendered to Ukrainians because they said nobody told us we are going to fight. We were said that we are at the military drills and that we need to get there to get information and return back. We don't want to fight. So the moral stance inside of the Russian army currently is under the question. Uh, from us, it's definitely the issue is for how long these people would continue um, to uh, uh, perform the, uh, the, these illegal orders. Thank you very much for being with us, uh, Dr. Hannah Shalist, live from Odessa here on The Shift. Uh, stay safe and please keep in touch with us, uh, Hannah, because we are at your service uh, to pass on the clarity. I acknowledge your work for clarity and information and for whatever Canadians need to know. Uh, we're happy to be your conduit to do that. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for the invitation. This is The Shift Podcast. Dr. Balkan Devlin joining us here on The Shift as we get updates about what is going on in and around uh, everything to do with Ukraine. Uh, Balkan is a senior fellow at the McDonnell Laurier Institute, leading the transatlantic program. Have you gone to bed yet, Balkan? <laughs> yes, I think I got like four hours of sleep. Um uh, last night, uh, unfortunately, there will be more sleep this night as, as this, this goes on. I have a question about your study to get us started before we even dig into the Ukraine stuff. In When you study all of this, uh, transatlantic relations and politics and all these different things that you see here, um, th this conversation or this experience of what's happening between Russia and Ukraine, probably inevitable in your study. Uh, the question, of course, becomes... Um, when and where and how dreadful that must be that must be one of those moments where you just don't ever want to see it but you know it's coming is that where we're at here indeed i mean somebody tweeted uh today saying that it's not fun living through history 
Um, and I, I totally agree with that. I mean, this is something we um, have been, you know, expecting, you know, thinking and, 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 and speculating and writing about. But it is, uh, it is it, when it happens, it is still quite a, a quite a disturbing thing to to observe a major war uh, happening uh, in Europe in 2022. So um, it is, uh, it is disturbing to see that, and it's no fun. I can tell you that. It was an interesting conversation that had come up. Um, someone who was a younger person, millennial, and what they've gone through with market crashes and politics and wars and so on. And they wrote the, from the perspective of being a millennial and saying, you know, I can't believe we've already had to live through all this stuff. But that made me think back to all the things that I've lived through. Brought me back to yeah. a conversation that you and I had about um, these things. Um, you know, fundamentally, it's nice to talk about other conversations like plastic straws versus paper straws. But when it comes to life every day and how life and politics works, this is where we are, right? This is pretty grounding. Yes. Yes. I mean, this, this really should put a lot of things into perspective, but it also should uh, make us realize here in Canada, particularly um, on, on how precious uh, our, our security and prosperity is and how rare it is uh, in, in in the grand scheme of things, things that we we have obsessed over or or engage in self-flagellation. Um, when you look at in the broader sort of um, circumstances, it is really not that uh, not, not that important. And um, things like wars, things like major dislocations, uh, economic uh, crises, those are the big currents of history, and uh, we are going through and observing it. And we should really cherish what we have and we should work towards maintaining uh, what we have. And I think if, if you know, if I, I, I was talking to someone else uh, today and, and mentioned them that if we need to, if one lesson we need to take out of this is that um, both the international order that we rely on, um, as well as our domestic political institutions, um, are fragile uh, constructs. They need to be protected, maintained, and defended. And if we don't, what we end up is what we end up with with the Russia invading Ukraine, for example. Um, those things need to be defended, and, and if we don't, we pay the price. And we, the sooner we understand that, and the sooner we put the necessary resources into into this, yeah, uh, the, the the better we are. Yeah, you know, and I think the way you said that, right? It is a fragile construct. I mean, the way we look at life today is nothing more than a construct of how we look at life today. That doesn't mean it can't vanish. We have this expectation of like, how dare you take away our access to uh, computer chips for our cell phones, right? Like, it's like, no, no, this that's the way it actually works. Yes, exactly. I mean, the the realization of how much we are dependent on a well functioning international order. Uh, for our security, for our prosperity, um, and that, yes, there are actors out there, there are countries out there, out there that are willing to use brute force to get what they want. And no, not everybody wants cooperation or peaceful relations uh, or, or just to get along uh, is unfortunately a rude awakening to many, um, particularly younger people who actually uh, you know, grow up uh, and, and came, came of age in an unprecedented time of, of prosperity. Despite the problems, uh, this is this is quite unprecedented in terms of the peace and, and prosperity that we we you know, experience here in the West. And that is an anomaly. That is not necessarily how generally the world works. And uh, Ukraine and the Russian invasion of Ukraine today 
is a, a very uh, you know, clear demonstration uh, of, the, of the fact that that's an anomaly. We need to really put things into perspective and, and realize that no one, no one owes us anything. And no, not everyone uh, share the same values or desires we have. We have to fight for them, we have to defend them, and we have to maintain them. I look back in time, um, Balkan, I look back in time at wars and, you know, people, I can't believe we're doing it. I've said that too. I looked back at wars and in 1979 alone, at least quoted, and some of these are revolutions, not necessarily wars and, you know, conflicts and whatever. But in the list of wars that started in 1979 alone, not including that started earlier and fought, but that started in 1979 alone. There was 13 different wars around the world back then. So we have come a long way. It's just that fundamentally, yes. it's um, we've become better at diplomacy, but fundamentally, it's still working the same way. Yes, and, and of course, nuclear weapons did change the dynamics between great powers, but it doesn't necessarily change the dynamics between a great power and a smaller power, a middle power or a regional power. And that's what we are witnessing here in, uh, in, in Russia and Ukraine as well. And we also need to sort of keep that in mind for ourselves. In Canada, yes, under you know, NORAD and, and American nuclear umbrella and all that stuff. But our, you know, our sovereignty, in a way, our defense, our security, is heavily dependent, really, on, on a well-functioning international system where we have uh, you know, a very good relationship with our best friends, whether we like it or not, uh, to the south of the border. Um, those, are, you know, those are vulnerabilities. I think Canadians uh, didn't really experience any of those threats since 1945. Uh, that's, you know, that's a generation that doesn't really went through what the greatest generation went through uh, with the First World War and the Second World War and the sacrifices they did in, in, in defense of freedom in democracy and our values and, and, and prosperity and security, which we didn't have to do it after 1945. Um, so we really need to sort of um, keep that, uh, that aspect in mind. And the one thing I tend to talk to my you know, the students um, when people talk about, oh, we are so interdependent now, war is not a possibility. One of the examples I always gave is that before the First World War, uh, in 1910s, uh, in 1912, 1913, the world is economically uh, more integrated than until we were in, in 2008, right? Uh, the, in terms of international trade, uh, the percentage uh, of trade, international trade is a percentage of GDP, financial flaws, etc. The world in, 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 the, in the, that first age of globalization was more integrated than the rest of 20th century. Yeah. Uh, uh, when you look at, and it didn't stop <laughs> the world war. So, um, the, 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 the use of force, of violence, uh, is a fact of international life. It's a fact of our lives, but also it's a fact of international life. And the, the sooner we understand that, we cannot excise this as if it's a demon and that everybody will rely on peaceful means of uh, you know, resolving their disputes. That's, a, that's an illusion. And I think uh, you know, uh, those illusions should have been uh, shattered when Russia invaded uh, Georgia in 2008 or invaded Ukraine in 2014. If it didn't, it should be shattered right now. And we need to recognize and came to uh, came to terms with the fact that uh, you know, that's not something uh, that, that's happening in the past. Uh, this is still a, a world in which uh, might matters a lot. 
I'd uh, just translate that simply um, without diminishing the magnitude of what you're talking about. I mean, we as human beings, this is so deeply woven into us that we as human beings, I mean, half of the marriages don't work and we divorce. So why would we think that geopolitics, international politics would be easier when we can't even spend a lifetime with one person, yet we expect all of the people of the world to get along? Um, Put it in context, right? Yeah, that's, that's a great analogy. Uh, you know, uh, that's that's a great analogy because it is assume people assume that oh no we we will find a way no not really no. when you have uh, you know dictators like Putin like Xi who are, um, are willing to uh, kill people who are willing to suppress their own citizens and others um, unless you stand up and unless you're strong enough to stand up to them they will take advantage of you and nice words will not be enough um, to stop them. And then people would go into this shock and say, oh, oh, can he do that? Well, he can do that because that's what who he is and that's how they, they, they view the world. And you have to be, the whole idea, if you, if you want uh, peace, prepare for war. We forgot that. Um, and we should remember that. The sooner we remember that, the better it is. Dr. Balkan Devlin with McDonnell-Lurie Institute. Let's take a quick look at Ukraine. There's not a lot that we can really update because the information is changing so quickly. Uh, a lot of it is not vetted yet. But there are three real looks here, uh, Balkan, that I really wanted to ask about. The first look is, of course, uh, Ukrainians looking at this Russian invasion. The uh, It seems to me that there are so many people that are trying to get money out now get out of the country now doesn't seem like it was taken very seriously as a threat at least mm-hmm. unlike Crimea which sort of just happened in that bottom corner this one is happening all over Ukraine and it seems to have caught an awful lot of Ukrainians off guard uh, I think I mean uh, I, I agree I think one of the reasons that people didn't want to believe that this would happen uh, there are two cognitive biases uh, so the way human beings think about the world in a distorted way um, that affects their behavior that is quite relevant here. One is what we call mirroring. You basically, uh, because you think certain things are not rational, you assume this is the case for other people. So you look at it, you know, it doesn't make any sense for, uh, for Putin to, to invade. There is no economic benefits. It will be politically costly. Why would he do that? So he won't do that. That's what we call mirroring. You are mirroring your own beliefs about what is desirable on other people. And that's not necessarily the case. So that's one, I think, uh, reason why a lot of people in Ukraine also is not expecting that. The second is what is called motivated reasoning. You don't want war, so you only look for um, uh, evidence uh, that would confirm uh, your belief that war will not happen. You disregard signs or evidence that contradict your beliefs because you don't want that bad outcome to happen. That's called motivated reasoning. Uh, and a lot of, including the, uh, until quite late, uh, the, the Ukrainian uh, administration engaged in that sort of um, uh, motivated reasoning and thinking that, oh, this, this cannot be happening. We don't want this to happen. So we just look at things that will uh, suggest that we are right and we ignore things that would suggest that we might be wrong. So uh, a lot of people, I think, uh, got you know, called flat-footed precisely because of these uh, these uh, you know cognitive uh, biases we as humans we all do um, share um, uh, across uh, across our species. Ah, seeking evidence makes you feel good, though. Um, 
Yeah, it really does. Um, okay, so but we, hey, we've learned an awful lot about that with pandemic, and now of course this war conversation. I mean, there's there's we as humans are starting to understand, you know, the sort of cognitive bias stuff um, more and more and more. I think it's become a conversation that we need to have more of. Let's take the look, Balkan, at um, at the neighbors, the NATO neighbors, and everything around mm-hmm. Ukraine right now. Uh, NATO is very clearly sticking up for NATO, and there's going to be an awful lot of troops. I was on Flight Radar 24 early this morning. You can see American, like there was this American strata tanker flying right at the border of Ukraine in circles. He's filling up fuel for somebody, and uh, but it was yeah. literally at the border. There was a bunch of Black Hawk helicopters on there too, flying 300 feet above the ground right at the border. Um, there's a lot of action from NATO people at the border, but nothing seems to be going across Ukraine's on its own. No, I mean, no, I, we shouldn't be expecting it anyway. I don't think a NATO, uh, NATO members will engage militarily in any shape or form uh, in Ukraine. Uh, unfortunately, Ukrainians are fighting alone and will fight alone. Um, we will and we should provide all sorts of weapon transfers and economic and political pressure against Russia, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, unless there is an attack on on a NATO member, uh, NATO will not get involved militarily uh, in the the conflict. If if this drags out and turns into a protracted conflict where there is an insurgency and a resistance against the Russian occupiers, then you might see sort of unofficial advisors and others and uh, you know training and so so forth to the Ukrainian resistance fighters. Uh, but you know we will not see any NATO troops getting involved. Uh, that carries a huge risk. Uh, you know having NATO and Russian troops uh, uh, clashing uh, is, is is a very big risk because it can escalate into a nuclear uh, nuclear confrontation if things go uh, go south. Uh, so we're not going to see it. But we will. What we will see is shoring up of, of NATO allies, right? Um, in the Baltics, in Poland, in Romania, um, you know, strengthening those countries, uh, sending more uh, American troops, sending more Canadian troops. We already announced that Canada is increasing the number of troops in Latvia, sending additional uh, you know, ships for, for NATO missions. We will see a ramping up of NATO capabilities on the border with, with Ukraine and, and, and Russia. Uh, precisely because of this conflict and precisely because we want to make sure that our NATO allies are well defended. Vulcan uh, Devlin, one last look. Canada. Canada, you know, I, you know, we talked earlier in this conversation about uh, Canadians, or excuse me, as people who are giving some lip service and not really doing much, we've started to see some ramping up of NATO support, as we're obligated to do, um, for everything else. Uh, is Canada getting active enough in this? I think slowly we're we're building up. There are new sanctions being announced uh, today, uh, sanctioning a, a number of individuals, banks, uh, Russian businesses. Uh, there are still, I think, big names, Russian oligarchs such as Abramovich are missing in those those um, uh, you know those sanctions. But for those sanctions to be effective, they need to be coordinated with allies. Um, Canada by itself imposing you know, sanctions on, on, on Abramovich would be important, but not as important as if we coordinated with the UK and Germany and, and the United States and imposed all together. So, um, I, you know, I, I am hopeful about the, you know, uh, the government slowly sort of rolling these things out and announcing new and harsher uh, economic measures and political measures. More can be done, and I think we should be doing more to coordinate among our allies um, to push for much stronger reactions, including 
um, you know, export, sorry, import bans on Russian energy uh, exports, such as oil and gas, uh, kicking them out completely from SWIFT and other international financial markets and system really targeting those who are close to Putin and Putin himself with personal uh, uh, personal sanctions. Uh, and unless we do that, these are these are going to hurt, but not as much as as, as we could. These, will, these are not game changers, in other words. We should do more, and I'm hoping that we will get there. Dr. Vulcan Devlin um, with McDonald Laurier and Institute uh, leading the transatlantic program there as a senior fellow. Thanks so much for being so generous through the time. I know you've had a busy day. I really do appreciate the insight. Uh, that's always a pleasure to talk to you, Shane. Thanks a lot. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 